Hello and welcome to Story of the Book, where middle grade YA and picture book authors tell the stories of their books from beginning to end. I'm Hayley Chewins, I write books about magical girls with secrets. And I'm Lindsay Eager, I write books about growing up in this weird, wondrous world. And we're so very happy to have you here. Let's get started. Hello, Caroline. Thank you so much for being on Story of the Book with Haley and I. We're so delighted to have you here. I am just thrilled to be here. So thank you for inviting me. You're so welcome. We're excited today to talk to you about your picture book, A Race Around the World, which is telling the story about Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bisland. Is that how you say her last name? I think so. I've said Bisland, but I I have never heard it properly pronounced. So I think you are safe with whatever you say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To start with, would you tell us a little about the book for anybody who is not familiar with it? Yes. So A Race Around the World takes place in 1889. And it's a time in the world where I, I, at least I had never thought about it this way, but technology was just growing by leaps and bounds. There were so many changes in the world. There were electric lights, there were telephones, there were fast ways to travel, uh, steamships and trains, steam trains. And uh, at this time, there was also a book that a lot of people had been enamored with written in 1876 called Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. And in that book, his fictional character, Phileas Fogg, travels around the world, circumnavigates the earth in 80 days. And there was a journalist named Nellie Bly. And at this time, only 2% of journalists in the country were women. And so this woman, Nellie Bly, decides that she would like to try to beat this fictional record. She discovered that she could actually make this trip in 76 days after uh, after studying ship routes and uh, train schedules, she was able to uh, make the trip or would be able to make the trip in how many days less is that? Six, no, four fewer days. So she goes to her boss at the New York, you, ah, she goes to talk to her boss at the New York <laughs> World, her newspaper, and she's, she kind of floats this idea by him. She says, you know, this would make a really interesting story for the paper. Um, what do you think about me doing this? And he basically says, well, great idea, but no woman would be able to do that because women need chaperones to travel and women carry far too much luggage. And she said, no, I would travel alone and I would only take what I could carry. And they said, well, yeah, still a great idea, but I don't think so. Um, You know, I really think only a man should take this trip. And she said, fine, I will. travel for another newspaper. You have you, you race your man. I will find another newspaper to sponsor me and I will beat him. And so he finally agreed that someday if uh, they were to ever do this story, she could be the one to, to travel. Well, a year later, the newspaper subscriptions really tanked. And so they decided this would be a nice publicity stunt. And Nellie was given three days to prepare for this race. So she gets organized. She only takes a bag that she can carry with her and she's ready to go. The next morning in the newspaper at nine o'clock as she is leaving New Jersey on a steamer heading toward Europe, um, the publisher of Cosmo magazine, which at the time was a literary magazine, 
he's reading in the paper about this lady journalist who's going to race around the world. And he thought, oh, isn't this interesting because there's this lady journalist on my staff, perhaps I can turn this race into a race between two women instead of just one woman's race against time. So he has uh, somebody show up at Elizabeth's house and tells her to report to work immediately. And seven and a half hours later, Elizabeth is on a train traveling west against her better judgment to begin with. But uh, she, in the end, also really had a spectacular time. So we have one, we have Nellie heading east. We have Elizabeth heading west. Nellie knows nothing about Elizabeth until day 39 of the trip. And that was really long and convoluted, but it was just such an amazing adventure. And it's real. That's what's so exciting about it. It's real. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like the perfect plot for a movie and yet it is real. Exactly. So how did you come up with the idea for this book? And had you always been interested in Nellie Bly? Well, I always had been interested. I had, um, I had three or four books. There was this series in the 70s. They were called Value Tales, I believe. And so Nellie was one of the books in the Value Tales. And I think hers was The Value of Fairness, which fits perfectly because she very much would talk about, I can do anything a man can do. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is a book that I grew up with and I really loved. And in January, 2017, that's when I first started working on this. Somebody in a, um, I was in a, I think it was in a Facebook middle grade uh, discussion group and somebody shared, and I don't even remember why they shared this. It was one of those links to like 20 women who changed the world or 15 women you've never heard about that you should know. So I thought, well, you know, I'm looking for a new book idea. So I clicked through and I was looking at this list and I saw Nellie on the list and I thought, Oh, I had a Nellie book as a girl. What if I wrote a Nellie book for a new generation? So I was really excited. And as I normally do for um, any new project, I checked out every book that I could come upon. And um, I traditionally start with books written for children because I feel like they really encapsulate um, kind of whatever core of history I'm trying to figure out. And they do so in a way that's really interesting. And then in the bibliography in the backs of the books often will direct me toward uh, meteor books that I might need to dig into next. And so that's where I started. I wasn't exactly sure where the story would take me, what part of Nellie's life I would focus on, but I had my new journal, which I have for each new book. And I had my stack of books for research. And so that's how it all began. In your author's note, you talk about how you so you wanted to write this book about Nellie Bly. You start reading about Nellie Bly, and then you realize there's actually this other woman, Elizabeth Bisland, who yes. was sent on the same trip going the opposite direction. Was that when the idea for the like the form of the book clicked for you? Absolutely. Because I was thinking, what about her life am I going to focus on? And then mm -hmm. when I read about Elizabeth, I thought, oh my gosh, why did nobody tell me this before? Like, how did I not yeah. know this? Because I, you know, I can't grant it. I mean, most of what I knew about Nellie was from this book from the seventies. So I was no <laughs> expert, but you know, I had never heard this. There had never been a time where this information had come up. And I thought, how is this even possible? So I knew this was going to be the focus of the book. I was also really excited because of all the uh, picture books that I had read, 
um, most of them certainly did touch on her race, but none focused exclusively on her race and not one mentioned Elizabeth. So I thought, okay, this is the angle. And I want, mm-hmm. I realize I don't want only this to be Nellie centric. This needs to be a story about both women as, as equally as I could make that uh, work out. And my editor mm-hmm. later when she acquired it, she said, you know, here's the thing. I think we can safely assume that most kids will not be familiar with this story. You know, a lot of adults have heard the name Nellie Bly. They might not know necessarily uh, why she was famous. But if we are presenting the story, we can present it in such a way that it's not clear from the beginning who's going to win. And so we can have this kind of back and forth give and take between, you know, Nellie's here, Elizabeth is there. Oops, Nellie had this problem and Elizabeth had this problem and who's going to win? And so that was a really uh, fun way to look at their stories. Caroline, did you always know that it would be a picture book rather than a longer work? I did. And that's actually one thing I have never, I've had a lot of friends um, like in my critique group and such who have said, you know, I started this as a picture book and then it was suggested, you know, everyone has told me let's move to that. You've got too much information, make that into a novel. I have yet to experience that. I can't say, you know, never say never, but I knew this would be a picture book that year. So that fall, 2017, I had a picture book coming out about uh, young Buffalo Bill when he was Will Cody. And so I thought, you know, this would would be kind of a fun follow-up if I were to approach the same editor at the same publishing house, this would kind of be a fun follow-up. What I didn't know, and this is gonna sound really ridiculous, I didn't realize I was writing nonfiction because up to this point, I know, no, it's so silly. Like, what do you think you were doing? Um, In fact, I said that when this was on submission, I was at, it was in um, Michigan at nerd camp. I don't know if you've heard of the nerd camp with students and teachers and authors and celebrating books. And there was an impromptu um, authors panel one afternoon. And I happened to, I don't know how this came up, but I happened to say on the panel that I had just written this book. It's on submission right now. And at first I didn't realize I was writing nonfiction. And Shannon Hale looked at me and she said, did you think you created World War II? Or like, what do you even mean by that? And I'm like, I know it sounds so stupid. This is how I figured out that it was nonfiction. I brought the book to my critique group. And we had worked on it, you know, a few times over. And one of my members, Uma Krishna Swami, who is just such a talent, she had just finished, well, maybe she hadn't finished it. She was in the midst of a book that just came out. I'll show it to you since you're, you can see me right now. I know listeners can't see me, but sitting here at my desk and it's finished. It's called Threads of Peace. It is an amazing book. Wow, that's gorgeous. That so beautiful. So beautiful. A work of art. And the tagline, or the tagline, the, what is that called? The subtitle? What is that called? Depends tagline. on, is yeah, it the tagline? That's okay. okay. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. Mohandas Gandhi and Martin Luther King changed the world. Wow. So watching Ooh, that's a big right, fat book, too. Oh, it is. It is. Okay. So that's not a picture really book. That's like a middle grade nonfiction. Is that what this middle is? Middle grade nonfiction. It's called Threads of Peace. Threads of Peace. And okay. it is just beautiful. We'll and link that in our show notes. Good. I think this did start as a picture book idea. In fact, I, I think 
I joined this group in 2013. Um, and I think Uma had first had the idea before I joined. So I only knew of it in its beginnings as, uh, as non middle grade nonfiction. So bringing my manuscript a few times over to the group, Uma said to me something about, um, you know, this nonfiction project. And I said, well, I'm not writing nonfiction. She said, Caroline, have you invented any scenes that didn't truly exist? And I said, no. She said, are you quoting anybody? Um, are, you, are you using as true dialogue things that you cannot account in the record? I said, no. She said, are you attributing any sort of emotion to your characters that you could not have found in the historical record? I said, no. She said, you're writing nonfiction. So I don't know how to do that. She was, you're doing it. So. You're already doing it. Because yeah. <laughs> would that have intimidated you if you had set um, out to write a nonfiction? Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. In okay. fact, this sounds really ridiculous, but I have, <laughs> I've created this continuum of historical fiction in my mind on the scale of one to five. And they're like, I will not write a five because that's too hard for me. So a one, and I don't know if this is- We read your blog post about this. It's yes. so interesting. This is, this is fascinating. Oh, yes. Keep going, keep yeah. talking. Okay. We love okay. yeah. Explain so, to us what the five points are. Okay, see if I can remember them all. So a yeah. one would be, uh, my book maybe would be a one. This is where there is a specific time and place in history, though it's not necessarily- like announced, like, and that book takes place somewhere between 1876 and 1880. But I never say like, hey, everybody, you know, I, I really don't give these landmarks that there, there's no specific historical event to anchor the book in, if that makes sense. Yes. So it's just in yes. this time and place that is a real time and place, but it's, there's no historical event to anchor it in. Which can I cut in and just say, yeah. as somebody who has also written historical fiction and is also working on a nonfiction um, the difference between, you might think somebody might think, oh, 1876 to 1880, that's so specific already, but think about the difference between 2016 and 2020 and yeah. how, how different four yeah. years, even four years can make, or even one year can make. So if you're, if you're talking about, yeah. So just for anybody who heard those dates and thought, well, that's already so specific. Uh, it's really not, it could get even more specific and even more anchored. Exactly. Right. So that's, so that's one. That's one. Yeah. So two would be there, there is a historical event thrown in, uh, but, and you're still anchored in this time and place. Um, I don't remember how I separate two from three. I think, oh yes, with three, you actually have real life characters. They are not the main characters, but you might have, this would be, for example, um, uh, actually, I think I've decided both Jasper and the Riddle of Riley's Mind, my first prose novel and Bluebirds, my uh, second verse novel would fit in this category. There's specific historical events and there are real historical characters, but they're not the main characters. They might, you know, mm -hmm. show up on the side. And so to kind of be speaking on behalf of real people seems rather mm -hmm. terrifying. And so terrifying, they were secondary yeah. characters. Then the fourth level is the main character being uh, the actual 
historical figure. And so putting, mm -hmm. putting actions and words and thoughts into the characters, you know, speaking on behalf of a character, that's, that's a really big thing. And so that's what I thought I was doing with this book. The fifth level mm -hmm. is when you have to actually go to, his, to a historical society and ask permission to write a book on behalf of this particular individual. And an example I have for that, which I would, could never do, but I love reading books like this, is uh, Melanie Fishbane has written a novel called Maud, which is about Lucy Maud Montgomery. And she's oh. an author I am completely obsessed with. I have read all of her books multiple times, but even more than that, she kept a journal from the time she was 14 until she died in her 60s. And I have committed to reading these journals every 10 years. I have done it twice. I will do it again in two years. I, I did it when I was 30 and 40, and I'll be 50 in two years and a few months. And so I'm going to do it again then. And I just, wow. so, that, so that somebody else has written this book, I'm like, yes, I want to read it. But to think that there's this group of people that would have to give you permission to do so is terrifying. Mm. So not only had I, you know, if, if I had told myself, I guess I had let myself realize I'm writing this level four historical fiction uh, picture book about these two characters. But if I had known that was nonfiction, that I could, I don't think I could have, that just was, I, I, I guess I went in ignorant and that was a really good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I was going to say, it's almost like your brain kind of tricked you into getting to do it because you kind of told yourself unconsciously like, oh, I'm just doing fiction. It's fine. This is something I've done before. I've done historical fiction before. Yeah, because I, I totally agree that doing anything nonfiction is so much more intimidating because it's like people are looking to the book as a source, as source material, as almost like an authority on this topic. So, and yeah. to you as the author. Mm. And yes. How, how did you, did you grapple with that at all? Feeling like, well, who am I to write this? Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know if you have a journalist background at all or any sort no. of. Uh, like formal qualifications that way, but was no. that ever uh, something that crossed your mind? It's really interesting you say that because back to Uma, the other huge thing, I learned so much watching her write that book. And it's a little bit like uh, Melanie Fishbane's in, in my thinking, thank you for writing this book. I would never attempt to. And thank you for letting me kind of enjoy the experience of you writing it. It's a little bit how I feel about like a swimming pool in someone's backyard. I don't want one. I don't want the, I don't want the responsibility. When my children were young, I didn't want that. Just the, the terror of something that might happen, but I will happily visit your swimming pool. <laughs> and so it's, it's that same idea and something that Uma taught me. And as she was going through this process, she went through draft after draft after draft and her editor wrote back to her at some point saying, you have done tremendous research. You have become really an authority to use your word, Lindsay. And she said, now I want you to put that research aside. You are a storyteller. First and foremost, you are a storyteller because this was her first nonfiction book too. So she said, you know, it's not like you are um, 
going to forget that information. You can always go back to that information, but your job is now to weave the story with the information that you have. Mm. And that was tremendously helpful to me. Sense Uma reminded me, you've got your information. Now you need to be the storyteller. And that doesn't mean, you know, throw, throw everything to the wind, but now, and that's something you already know how to do. She reminded me, you, you have been a storyteller for a long time. You are not a historian. Uh, you are not writing a textbook. You are telling a story. And so use those skills that you've always had in order to engage your future readers. And that was tremendously liberating for me. So I, that whole idea of I am an authority figure, come to me for my wisdom. No, I can't do that. I am walking alongside the reader and am experiencing just this marvel of an event with them. That's something I can do. That's something I can do. Ooh, that is gold. That is, that is gold right there. And that like <laughs> takes so many of the questions that I wrote down. You you absolutely nailed it. So let's talk about the drafting. And so so you gathered research first, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. What was it like? Um, did you have like an organization system that you used for that research? Will you talk about that? And then after you're done talking about that, I'll ask you more about pulling the story out of the facts as you're drafting. Okay. okay. So I always start with a notebook and, you know, I've got my pile of books in a notebook and not exactly sure where I'm heading, but I always trust that as like kind of the, the broad massive amount of information as I'm reading is going to start to slowly, uh, what would the word be? Come together, congeal maybe. Um, as I start to have questions, I will start to focus in more specifically on uh, particular ideas. So I, I just trust that will happen. It doesn't always happen immediately, but it does start to, to come together. Hey, hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to cut you off there. So, you know, you trust this process from the beginning. I just feel like, uh, Part of part of what is tricky about writing anything historical or anything with a lot of research is feeling like you have to use everything that you've researched or um, or just the fear of things being cut out and um, excised as you go along. I mean, you've written so many historical projects at this point. So is this just just wisdom on your part to just know that you will probably do 10 times as much research as actually makes it on the page. And, and yet it all counts. Yes. Though, let me say, I'm listening to a few of your words here and you are pushing all of my insecurities in such a good way. You're using words like wisdom and trust. And I'm like, I, I really want these things to be true. I, I am an angsty, fearful writer. You'd think, you know, I I started this the summer of 1998 is when I first sat down and finally said, I'm going to try to write a book. Um, I was teaching middle school. My husband was in grad school. We didn't have children yet. And so I, you know, I was like, I'm finally going to give this a try. And what is that like 24 years ago at this point, 23, something like that. Mm -hmm. I still, I am not brimming with confidence over here. (laughs) I would like to, I constantly battle myself, unfortunately. But I have learned all that said, as much as I am capable of, I have learned and I am learning to trust the process. It is hard. um, 
I know you're exactly right. Most of what I am reading will not end up in the book, but it's for my benefit. It's something um, that will um, undergird a story. It's something that is going to satisfy my intellect. I kind of feel like research is, it's like taking a class that's tailored just for me. I get to pick my subject matter. I get to go as broad or as deeply as I'd like to go in the time frame that I would like to, to do it in. And so it's really, that's empowering and that's exciting. I won't, um, I, I will confess that there are times I'm like, come on, let's get rolling here, Caroline. You know, where, where are you going with this? Because as I've told you before, Lindsay, plot is not my um, strength. And so having a ready-made, okay, I know what's going to happen here. Now I just need to kind of fill in the blanks is helpful in this regard in a story like this. Um, you asked a question that I do not remember anymore. <laughs> no, I, I sidetracked you from an answer that you were giving about or about gathering your research and organizing okay. it before you started drafting. But I'm so okay. glad, I'm so glad that you said that. And, and just a, you're not alone. I, I feel like, um, every writer that I talk to feels somehow less confident in their abilities, the more books they write, which is yeah. so backwards. It's the weirdest job that way that the more you do it, the harder it gets. It's so unfair. Um, <laughs> But we keep showing up. That's the amazing thing. We do for because we're sick, sick people. Um, <laughs> but it it is it is backwards that way. Instead of the more experience we have uh, in this industry, I feel like the less certain we are, and and that's really cruel <laughs> in a lot of ways. But you but uh, you know just to just to uh, I don't know assure you, you have a lot of wisdom, and you have I mean you I do you even unprompted, it just is spilling out. So I'm so grateful for all of those years of you working in this particular uh, niche of historical fiction and nonfiction, because you're just brimming with, with wisdom. Absolutely. I will say in particular with this book, the book that turned my research on its head is a book called 80 days. Oh, something or other. It's by Matthew Goodman. I'll have to look up at this specific title for you. Um, but it read like a novel. It was so fascinating. Oh. And that's when I found out about Elizabeth. I thought, what in the world? Who didn't tell me? And this is when I really focused in. And his book was so detailed. It broke it. It broke down the story like day two for Nellie was day one and a half for Elizabeth. And this is where Nellie was. And this is where Elizabeth was. And I thought, I have got to make a record. It's gonna be bigger than this little notebook where I'm jotting notes. So what I ended up doing was making this huge spreadsheet that I ended up putting on my wall, on my office. I had kind of like, that was the junior version, the at a glance, which was like, you know, six pages long. And then I had this uh, document on my computer that I would go to and I would record everything from on day, you know, 42, this is where Nellie was, this is where Elizabeth was. So it was this really helpful at a glance. And then I would have a column where I would, um, if there were specific quotes that I wanted to have um, from particular characters, I would record the time of day on arrivals, you know, they arrived in Singapore at this time and what the weather was like, um, any other significance if there, you know, if there was an issue of some sort. And then I would also record kind of where 
in the character arc or the, or the journey, the course of the journey where the character was, if this was a high point, if this was a low point, you know, if there was some sort of trouble along the way. And so visually I had this chart to pull from. So what's really interesting about this book, my editor, and I'm gonna go back and uh, just kind of uh, backtrack for a moment here. When I first started writing this, I told you that I thought this particular editor would be a good fit for this book. I did not have any sort of option in my last contract with her. And so I said to my agent, I said, you know, I really want to write this book about Nellie Bly. This editor and I have had very similar book tastes as children. I feel like we just really tracked with the things that we read and the things that we're interested in. And I said, would it be out of line if I were to email her and said, hey, I've got this idea. It would be a great follow-up after Will Cody uh, about Nellie Bly. She said, go for it. She said, of course, she can't make you any promises, but, you know, send her an email. Just, you know, carbon copy me on the email. So I sent an email and <laughs> she sent back one word in capital letters and it was intrigued. So that <laughs> kept me like the next six months. I love that. <laughs> This is, this is encouraging to me. So after she acquired the book, she told me that completely out of, just as a coincidence, she had also for pleasure read this Matthew Goodman book about Nellie and Elizabeth. And then when she acquired the book, she reread the book and I sent her my chart and she was so into the chart and she sent the chart to the illustrator who like used the chart to make her illustration. So it was just really, really cool. So after you've got your charts and you've done, I assume, months of research, or how long do you think you spent just doing research? So I looked back in my records, and this is one thing that um, I feel like there's so much that is out of my control in the writing and publishing world. But one thing I can control, actually, I'm going to quote you for a second here, Haley. <laughs> Something that you said a few years ago, and I think it was on your blog, is that we can control two things. It is the words that we put on the page and the attitude that we bring to our work. Mm. And I've thought so much about the attitude because I often come with the fear and the angst and I can't do this. Same. So, <laughs> hey, attitude I'm bringing to the work. But a third thing I feel like I can control is the amount of time that I put in mm -hmm. because I feel like, you know, the both of you, I listen to you and I just like, you are amazing drafting 5,000 words a day. And I'm like, that is not my ability, but I can sit down at a two hour stretch and push a timer and see that I have put in two hours on Monday and four hours on Wednesday. And I can watch that time build. And, and in this midst of rejections and not necessarily knowing what the future of a writing project is, all those things I can't control. I can see that in August, I put in X number of hours on this project. And so by the time it's finished, like that's something that I can hold to. And I, I've always been someone who likes information and recording information and watching progress. And that's one thing I can control is the time. So looking back at my records, <clears throat> excuse me, I started my research January of 2017, and by May, I started drafting, mm -hmm. and six weeks later, I think, so it was mid-June, I had, I had done six drafts, 
taken several, you know, several times over to my critique group. We meet every two weeks. Right now, of course, we're Zooming, but um, back back in the old days, we met in person. Um, <laughs> with one Zoomer, Uma is in Canada, so she Zooms in with us. But cool. um, so, yeah, so six weeks. So started, I guess that's four months of research and then six weeks of drafting. And then I sent it to my agent and it sold at the end. It, it sold in 20 days. Were those drafts very different? Like when you say six drafts, are you kind of throwing everything out and then starting from scratch or are you building on what you have? I was building on what I had. Um, I don't remember specific, the specific changes so much as things like tone. One of the things, um, my critique group again, and I know I keep mentioning them, but they have been so instrumental in shaping me as a writer. I have to honestly say, like there are all, there are five of us. I am the junior member by far. I'm like 15 to 20 years younger than most members. Um, The fact that they have allowed me in still is such an honor. In fact, unbeknownst to me, they all, this was, I just had maybe at this time published and evidently they all read the book and they all discussed if, if I was worthy <laughs> of the group. <laughs> and then it's, they, like, it's like an apartment co-op board exactly. or something. Like, <laughs> and then Did I was you have to interview? For a trial meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just been hugely beneficial. And one of the, some of the feedback that I got was, um, Again, that whole idea of storyteller versus uh, reporting the facts, you know, textbook. They said, you know, think about authorial voice. We want voice in this book and you have voice. You, you know, you've written these other books. So don't hold back. You need to texture this, uh, all these facts with voice. And so that was really good Mm -hmm. feedback. I know also, um, and this actually might've been in the version that I eventually sent to my agent too, but I had a little tagline for each character. So we could see, you know, as we're, this is how Nellie experienced things. This is how Elizabeth experienced things. And that didn't really work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> another thing that I had, this was interesting. I, it maybe would have worked perhaps for another book. Um, but it was an interesting way to think about the book. I had, um, as art notes, um, newspaper headlines Mm. for particular spreads. So, you know, this would have been like, uh, you know, this is happening here as Nellie's crossing the ocean and Elizabeth's on the train. This headline says, you know, uh, you know, Elizabeth Bislin is chasing on Nellie's heels or something like that, Um, which that would have been really interesting, but that didn't end up being how the book came about in the end. So, Right. Just some differences along the way. Okay. Well, that, that is sort of similar to gathering all the research is gathering all the drafts and the little things that you try that end up becoming scaffolding for yes. the real thing in the end. I like that scaffolding. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Those are things that I needed to know and I needed to experience if they weren't necessarily there in the text, they were influential in what ended up being in the text. Yeah. And did you... Go ahead. Have a particular word count in mind when you started, because yeah, 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 that that is that is one of my questions too about how um it's a it's a longer picture book than your standard three to five hundred word picture book 
metric. Exactly. And all my other picture books are around the 300 word mark, which is kind of, I just feel like that is the sweet spot for me. I kind of can feel it coming to an end by that point. So I wasn't sure. I knew that um, these picture book biographies were longer, but I wasn't exactly sure of how long. And so again, another critique group member, this is uh, Vonda Michelle Nelson has written a number of really fabulous um, nonfiction picture book biographies. She's won the Coretta Scott King for Bad News for Outlaws. That's an awesome book, mm -hmm. Bad News for Outlaws, <laughs> the story of Bass Reeves. Um, and so I knew from her they could be longer, but I wasn't exactly sure. I was like, is a thousand words pushing the limit? Is 2000 words pushing the limit? I think my first draft was close to 2000. I think it was 1900 words. This is not mm. counting the author's note because that's mm. you know, quite a bit more. And then I think what I, um, oh, no, no, no. First draft, I don't remember. What I turned into my agent was the 1900 words. Right. And then um, what actually published is closer to 15, maybe 1550. Okay, so, so I cut, out a that's chunk. a significant, a fourth of it almost. Yeah. And when you're writing a picture book, do you, can you imagine the art? Do you think about how the art will look? Or are you quite good at kind of letting, like you do the words and you let the, the art go to the artist, the illustrator? Yeah, I, um, there are times where I will, I can picture a scene, but I can keep that separate in my mind from what the final art will look like, if that makes any sense to you. Mm -hmm. It's funny because mm -hmm. when I um, was working on my first picture book over in the wetlands, um, my editor said to me, she said, do you have any illustrators in mind for your book? And I thought, I didn't know that authors were ever asked that question. That's cool. So I looked through some people online and I sent her a sample and I said, you know, so-and-so can really draw a nice uh, alligator. This is a book about the Louisiana wetlands. And she said, oh, Caroline, your book is about movement and we need someone who can capture movement. And I thought, my book is about movement? I had no idea. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, like, I was just so happy that there are these people who are much brighter and more knowledgeable and skilled in the, this artistic department, because that is not anything that I know. So I, I will say this, I, I did have one picture in my mind. And the story, we did have to condense and cut, but there's this scene and I love how the picture ended up, even though you don't necessarily have the full written scene anymore. Nellie goes, she takes a day and a half, maybe it's even two days. She, uh, once she reaches Europe, she ends up in England. And then she takes a detour to France because she wants to meet Jules Verne because he is the author that inspired this trip. Yeah. Oh, it gives me chills. So in historically Nellie goes to Jules Verne she spends a few hours with with Jules and his wife and in the hallway near his office where he has written around the world in 80 days he has this huge map on the wall and on this map he has marked out the journey of Phileas Fogg so he's taken this you know think of this old French home without electricity he holds a candle up to his map and with discussing things with Nellie, he is marking out Nellie's journey alongside Phileas Finn's. So to kind of mark where their, their journeys will converge and when they will be different. And I just, wow. it was so beautiful. I could see 
I thought, what a, if this were to be in the book, what a cool illustration. So that those particular, the words and the actual encounter that they have isn't necessarily developed in the final draft, but there is this lovely picture of them standing together in front of the map. And so that just, I thought, oh, I love that. That's one of my favorite illustrations in the book. One thing that's really interesting about writing nonfiction or writing historical, anything historical, fiction or nonfiction is retreading or retelling stories that maybe are already known. And you mentioned earlier, you know, kids may not have heard of Nellie Bly. Adults may have heard of her, but maybe didn't know about this journey. Certainly like no one has heard of Elizabeth Bisland. I hadn't, you know, before this, um, how do you take, how do you take a story or, or even, um, tropes that are really well known at this point and make them fresh and new and told as Caroline Rose Starr would tell them because you've already mentioned you know there's this other book that talked about Nellie and Elizabeth Mm -hmm. um and and there's you know, there was a book in the, in the 70s about Nellie Bly. And you said, I want to write a new book for, you know, the next generation, the new generation. And there's other books on Nellie Bly. So how do you, how do you shape the story in your way? Because it, it, you know, you can do this with fiction with, if you gave 10 authors, a different fairy tale to retell, you'd have 10 very different books. Yeah. Even if we all started with the same inspiration but we all sort of bring our own take and twist so as you're revising are you honing in on that and and um and like any any wisdom any of your caroline wisdom about how how to sort of feel like you have permission to find your own take Hmm. on this story permission to find my own take i love that as you were talking the two words that kept coming to mind were wonder and excitement because I just I couldn't stop talking about this for the six months that I was working on this project I mean did you know I just I wanted I wanted to tell everybody and then I would find a new a new fact and I thought that can't even be real I just I feel like those were two things that I wanted to harness to bring into this how astounding this was and I really wanted to honor the two women because the more that I learned about them, the more it, it, there's this interesting um, tension because they are two people, no one else in the world ever did this. Uh, and of course, other people circumnavigated the earth and uh, you know did so attempting to beat particular records, but there was never this dual race going on at the same time. And again, two women, I mean, when would this have ever happened? It was, it's, it's outstanding. It's, it's remarkable, but they were incredibly different too. And I really wanted to honor the difference of their characters and their personalities and their motivations. You know, Nellie was really, um, a go-getter. Uh, she was gutsy. Can you imagine? She was 25 when she did this. And so she would have been 24 the year before when she came to her boss and said, Hey, I want to take this trip. I would have never, ever, ever had the courage (laughs) as a 24 year old to do anything like that. I wouldn't even have that courage now. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't either. So, so I just, yeah. that was just so astounding to me. And she loved kind of being in there and doing the dirty work of, um, of reporting. She was an on the ground 
investigative, undercover sort of person. And she loved all that. And while she was hidden, she loved the byline. She kind of was really into the, the, the limelight of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth was an entirely different person. She had really liked the slow pace of a magazine. She um, had poetry readings in her house. She was very interested in literary things. She wasn't really interested in the byline. She didn't feel like she wanted to make a name for herself. She um, just kind of enjoyed her art and the opportunity to to share it uh, through her magazine work. And so when she was told you were taking this trip, at first she was like, this has got to be a joke. And then she said like, I'm not doing that. And we really don't know historically what in the end changed her mind. We don't know if her her publisher threatened her job or what exactly happened to make her change her mind. But, you know, she, she, by the end of that day was on the train and it was a life-changing experience for her because she had as a child and as an adult, and she was 28 at the time. So just a few years older than Nellie had, um, you know, done, I'd always read about the world in, in books. And so the fact that she was finally going to see this world Uh, Again, this was not something she asked for, but with having it thrust upon her, it really became a life-changing experience. And so I guess wonder and excitement about this storyline itself, and then just wanting to really honor these women in an incredibly unique situation. They never met, but they had this same experience, you know, coming two different directions, Um, but honoring their differences too. That was just really, that was the heart of what I was trying to, to accomplish. I remember the scene when Elizabeth is on the ship. I think it's the first ship that she takes across the Pacific and there's a storm. And then she, when the storm calms down, she's standing on the deck looking at Mm -hmm. out at the ocean. And there's this line about how it's so beautiful. It's, it's just like a book, but, but better. (laughs) It's like almost like the things that she's been reading about in books are coming alive before her eyes. Yeah. So I just, Oh, I just, I'm so in awe of you because you, you did that so, so beautifully. And there's such a beautiful balance between them. And even though at the end, of course, there's a winner, I think you just did such a good job at the ending of balancing that it doesn't feel like it's actually a book about Nelly because she won. Mm-hmm. It feels like it really is still a book about these two women and both of their lives were changed yeah. in a huge way from this journey, no matter whether they won or lost the race. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad that worked out because that was my intention. What I loved about learning about Elizabeth Bisland uh, taking this journey too is on one hand, yes, only 2% of journalists at the time were women or like, you know, paid staffed journalists because there were obviously plenty of women doing work like this that were not officially being paid. Yes. But right. you take that element of, you know, hey, women are, are marginalized in this time period. And yet, this story that you've always heard of Nellie Bly, this amazing woman taking this solo trip. Well, guess what? She actually wasn't the only one because it turns out women are people and people do things. <laughs> and like in the hands of another author, I can just see it turning into either a, a good woman and the evil woman who's trying mm-hmm. to a, a mean girl situation or turning it into like Nellie Bly did this and saved women. Women can do things now, you know, like the way that those lists do um, the, the 20 women who changed the world, which are very important, but also sometimes put women on a weird pedestal in a way Mm. that um, 
because it turns out historically women are people and women do things and women have always done things. And it's always, it's never just one woman doing something. And to take that a step further, what encouraged me is it's not just one type of woman because I, I love, you know, we talk a lot about girl power books and, and again, there's, I love that we, we need that, but I've, I've also felt, and especially the type of girl I was, I wasn't a big, bold, go get them. I, I was not Nellie. I mm, love same. Nellie. I admire her, but you know what? I'm a lot more like Elizabeth and mm-hmm. I'm not quick on my feet and um, I'm not bold. And it might take me a moment to kind of put my thoughts together, but I love the beauty around me. And I just, I really related to how she just loves the, loved the world and Mm -hmm. loved beauty and loved art. And I just thought, I think sometimes erroneously, and I don't think we mean to do this, but I think sometimes we give girls messages. Girls can, you know, girls are strong and there's only one way to be a really bold girl or to be a girl that makes a mark in the world. And you know what? You can be kind of, and again, I can't, perhaps I'm projecting a bit on Elizabeth, but, um, you know, I, I, I thought kind of, as I wrote the story, introvert versus extrovert. And yeah. I definitely, I was thinking that too. Yep. And I don't know officially, you know, how they both would have qualified or, or been, or whatever, what camp they would have mm-hmm. fallen into. But, you know, I, mm-hmm. I suspect Elizabeth was the introvert and introverts yeah. can can make a mark in this world too. There's not one way to be a person. There's not one way to be a girl. There's not one way to be a woman. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's not one way to be strong. Like you can exactly. be strong in a quiet way. Exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a whole can of worms that we could dive into. <laughs> uh, well, I love the story about you selling this book to this wonderful yes. editor who was initially intrigued by the book and then ended up reading the same book. I mean, the same uh, source material as you. So can you tell us a little bit about that, how you sold this book in 20 days? Yes. So it went because, again, because we had done a book together, but there was no option in my previous contract. It went, I think we sent it to five different people, uh, two of which uh, editors I've worked with before. Uh, But I think I was looking at my records last night. This went out on sub on a Friday by the next Tuesday there was a message saying from my editor, Wendy, I'm taking this to editorial. And then one or two days later, I'm taking this to acquisitions. And then, you know, 20 days from the start, here's the offer. So, and then with that offer came the information about, I had read this book. She actually, her, I don't know if it was like her great, great uncle's father-in-law or some sort of convoluted relationship in the past. He had also circumnavigated the world at some point. What? And so... (laughs) It's just like, this was meant to be, I mean, these, like we were, when we would talk on the phone, it was just so joyful. And we just were, we were mutually in awe of these women together. So it was just so fun. This, this book was a joy from the start to the end. I loved working on this book and she just sharpened me. She sharpened the story. It was a wonderful experience. That's amazing. I'm so Yeah, it's so cool to hear about that because we all know publishing can be a bit of a roller coaster. There are high moments, there are very low moments, (laughs) but sometimes every now and then, sometimes things just work out and things connect and magic, magic happens. So cool. 
So at what point did you bring in illustrators for this this book? This is really interesting. So again, I've only worked with, um, I've worked with a small press. This is Albert Whitman for this book with picture books. And then I've worked with large press, um, the Random House side of Penguin Random House. I've done several picture books as well. So on the Random House side of things, um, and I, again, I, I can't speak for all circumstances, but these were two very different experiences. So I thought it would be interesting to bring this up. On the Random House side of things, as soon as my books sold, I was straight into the edits, did all that work, did the copy edits, and then it was quiet, sometimes for years, <laughs> waiting for the <laughs> illustrator to come along. But all my work was done. On the Albert Whitman side of things, it was silent for about a year. Then an illustrator was selected. And then as I was uh, do, I suddenly started my edits. And at the same time, they were having discussions with the illustrator. So instead of this upfront work waiting for the illustrator, there was this waiting as they were looking for the illustrator. And I see the, the first, my first introduction to the illustrator is a sketch of my character. So I can immediately see, oh, look, that's, you know, that's Nellie right there on the page. And then my work begins. And another key difference between, um, and this is probably the um, historical fiction and nonfiction versus just straight up fiction for picture books. I was quite involved in the, um, the illustration. And what I mean by that is I got to see, this was so cool. I got to see lots of notes on various drafts of the illustrator's work. And they wanted to make sure that things were historically accurate, meaning the clothing or the, um, the environment. And so I could kind of, you know, say on page 32, I'm not so sure about such and such. And so it was really cool for me too, to see that give and take drafting, which is so similar to what we do, but I, you know, it always had been a mystery to me. I'd never been invited in before on the, the inner workings of the, um, the illustrator's process, but this was really cool to kind of get to see that back and forth and to see how the images changed over the course of several uh, drafts. So that was really, that was a really cool experience. And another thing I wanted to just add about the illustration, as they always do, there certainly was a separation between author and illustrator because it is not my place to say, excuse me, on page 14, that was not my vision. You know, whatever, whatever I sent back to my editor, I'm sure they processed and took, you know, <laughs> you silly illust- or you silly author, let's see how we might, you know, first, what we're going to throw out and second, what we might use and how we might communicate that to our mm. illustrator. So again, there, there is this separateness that ultimately honors the illustrator that, so that they can tell their side of the story most fully. Yeah. Just really allowing everybody to do the jobs that are their expertise. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. that, and that an illustrator is not just an artist. Um, an illustrator is very specifically there to illustrate a picture book, texts that are in story. story. Yep. With their art. It's, mm. it's just, and, and a writer working on a picture book is not just a writer. They're somebody who's specifically there writing a story for children. And those are, mm. those are important distinctions just because yes. it means mm. that an illustrator has insight into doing their job that, you know, just like a, a, a children's book, picture book author has it's specific insight into what their job is. Yeah. 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 I've, I've heard it described before. It's, you know, it's not illustration 
plus story, one plus one equals two. There's something exponential that happens when you bring the story, the, the words and the pictures together. There's something that's bigger. They, they couldn't exist fully on their own apart, but together yeah. there's this extra thing that happens. Yes. Which is what makes so it a, a picture book. I mean, that's. Yeah. That yeah. alchemy. Yeah. Yes. 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 Well, Caroline, we're going to go ahead and ask our final question. Sorry, I had a certain child of mine come downstairs and peek at me because it's just about time to drive her to school. (laughs) She peeked around the corner and did the sixth grader glare at me. Um, So we always uh, wrap up our interviews um, by by talking about a piece of writing advice or writing uh, instruction uh, that is often passed around in the writing community. And sometimes these are things that are, that are, that come down from, you know, maybe institutional writing, um, institutions, uh, (laughs) like MFA programs or, or maybe kind of, uh, old fashioned writing advice. Um, and we just like to ask our interviewees, about them and get your reaction. You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. You can just say it depends entirely. Uh, It's totally up to you. um, Some of it's good advice, some of it's bad advice. And most of the time I feel like it just really depends. Um, So what I wanted to ask you about was the the writing advice that is often given uh, to follow your passion, to write what you're passionate about. What do you think about that as writing advice for, for writers? Yeah, I would say as writing advice for me, that has definitely worked um, because I do let my curiosity guide me as to far as, as, and far as, in as far as what I would like to be um, exploring next. Um, I don't know if that, I have much more to say. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, very interesting. Well, no, it is interesting because really do you have so do you have like a list of projects that are waiting in the wings for you to write or do you like you haven't started yet or are you like finishing something and then going okay I'm going to give myself some kind of blank space to just notice where my attention goes. I am not somebody with loads and loads of lists. Like Lindsay, I've heard you talk about, you know, I've got all these books I'm going to write before I die. And I'm so jealous. It makes me again, it makes me like, and this is, again, this is not about you. It's about my own insecurities. I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not legit. Cause I'm not, you know, just overflowing with these ideas, but I do, I feel like there are things that have been brewing beneath the surface that I've not necessarily been aware of for years and the connections, they start to bubble up and connections might be made. Um, And so I do kind of have some back burner, very vague ideas. They're never anything developed. They might be, they might be a question like a, what if this, or what about Mm -hmm. that? Or what Mm -hmm. about this moment in time? So it's, it's usually not, you know, this person experiences this event, but it's more, it's a vague sort of thing. And I also feel like my books start with, there's almost, it's a sensation. It's not an emotion. It's not some sort of, I can't explain it, but it's like a sensation that I want to, it's maybe it's like an atmospheric sort of thing that I want to 
grab and then communicate somehow. Um, so I'm not, I, I want to honor those weird, really vague <laughs> sensations and ideas that are never very fully developed. Um, so yeah, so passion, curiosity, maybe curiosity for me is a better word. Yeah. Mm. Follow my, uh, follow my curiosity. I like that too, because, um, that distinction that you've just made of, of curiosity, especially because I feel like looking at your work, you do write a lot of very research heavy projects. Um, and, and there's something about a lot of research that can sometimes get, if not boring, it can make you impatient Mm -hmm. when you're working on something. Um, and passion can only cover so much of that. Yes. (laughs) I'm doing, I've just started researching something in the last few weeks and already I'm like, I'm kind of overwhelmed right this moment. I'm not deeply interested. Yep. What does that mean? And I slept on it last night and I woke up and I thought, Oh, but I have some questions about A, B, C, and D. Mm. And they might not necessarily be answered specifically in my research, or they might not be answered, you know, anytime soon, but those are things I want to explore. Yeah. So, you know, I, I keep, I'm drawn back in, even when (laughs) I'm hitting a wall or uh, I'm not sure where I'm going, or I'm just overwhelmed with this need to feel like an expert which I don't. And, but there's this need to, you know, if I'm going to be communicating something, even if it's not something I'm communicating directly, indirectly, I need to be familiar enough with, in order to tell a story, I need to bring it back. And I guess that's kind of that idea of being the storyteller again, Um, where has my curiosity led and how can I kind of harness those first inklings, even if they change completely, which they often do, how can I harness those first inklings into something that will be appealing to other people as well? Yeah, and something else that strikes me about the distinction between passion and curiosity is that passion feels like it's very much about me. Like Mm -hmm. I am passionate. I'm the vessel for this passion. Whereas Mm -hmm. curiosity feels like it's about the work. It's about or about the world or about what you know even in fiction you might be curious about a particular emotional experience or even curious about oh if I wanted to write about that how would I do it or if I wanted to write a book you know with two timelines and one goes forward and the other goes backward like how would I do that and I think that is a, a different that's a different kind of motivation the one feels like it's facing the work and it's outward facing whereas the passion thing feels like yeah, it's kind of a recipe for disaster for anxious people because you're always exactly. inward looking, going like, where's exactly. the passion? Where's the feeling? And it's going to be hot and cold. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that roller coaster again. Yeah. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I think of passion, I think of a really hot, fiery explosion of feelings <laughs> and then nothing. <laughs> right. Which is not this, good for book writing. No, a, a big, huge burst of momentum at the beginning, which is wonderful. And just like, oh, that's when you just wish you could bottle it up and just keep mm. it forever. But it, it burns out so fast. And then you've got to have, you either have to, well, I, I should speak for myself. I either have to create more fires 
um, <laughs> somehow, which, you know, you can do, you can, yeah. you can generate your own passion and, um, or else I've got to replace it with something else that's, um, more sustainable and curiosity. Absolutely. I think is, is, uh, long-term quiet passion. Yes. Mm. Oh, that's so good. Thank you so much for listening to Story of the Book. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Or give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, stay safe and keep writing. Bye! Bye. <laughs> <laughs>